Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through the prophets in his holy scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now look with me at Romans 16 and verse 25. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. This is God's word. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we consider your word this morning, that we would be mindful of the fact that we have the privilege of doing so because of the love of you, our triune Lord. That you, Father, loved us and sent your Son, Jesus, to purchase grace for us and poured out the Spirit that we might be united to Christ through faith and so be alive in Him and be adopted as your children and be able to come to you in prayer with confidence and be privileged to sit as those who hear your word, not as your enemies any longer, but as those who are your friends, your sons, adopted in Christ Jesus for eternal glory, co-heirs with Christ. We pray that as we consider your word this morning, your spirit would illumine our minds, that you would work powerfully in our hearts, that you would bring us to a proper understanding of your word, any necessary repentance before your word, And joy in hearing you, our Lord, speak to us, your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, last year I was at Together for the Gospel with Radius International, uh, the organization that Tom had mentioned earlier. I was privileged to be the founding board chairman with some other men who founded that organization. And I was there with our president, Brooks Buser. Brooks had just returned um, from giving a significant portion of his life to a tribe or a people group called the Yembe Yembe. He was sitting at that time with a young pastor. We had gone to a church here in town and for a luncheon, and was sitting with a young pastor who was a seminary grad from Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and in, he had interned at a, a really reputable local church and was now pastoring in another state. And this young pastor looked at Brooks and asked him, well, what is your view of white privilege? And then he asked Brooks, What do you think about the social justice movement? And how do you think these things inform the Great Commission? And Brooks kindly told him that this is not an issue that he dealt with on the mission field. He encouraged the young pastor to consider something 
um, I've kind of, in a smart alecky way, termed gospel privilege. <laughs> he said, we have good news. We have the good news and the word of God in our language, but there are 3,100 plus people groups who do not know the gospel. They have no access to the gospel. And Brooks pointed out to the young man, that should be our greatest concern. With complete sincerity, this young pastor looked across the table at Brooks and said, you are not woke. Now, I was stunned by the arrogance of this young pastor. And more importantly, by his complete and utter lack of biblical and eternal perspective. My primary concern, don't you hear this? My primary concern as a gospel minister is not the particular social injustices of our nation. And please hear me. I do not mean to dismiss injustice. As anyone who loves God and loves his neighbor, we despise injustice. I believe there's injustice all around us, from racism to sexism to um, the greatest tragedy currently in our nation, abortion. There is abuse by governing authorities. There is the legislating of immorality and gay marriage. We can, frankly, name innumerable justices. So I'm not dismissing or excusing or denying any of that. I just mean to plead with you for some biblical and eternal perspective. Making America great again is not my primary concern as a gospel minister. Do you know that? My primary concern is the eternal condition of men's souls. I'm not saying this as some naive and politically disinterested party, by the way, just to make clear. My father was a police officer killed in the line of duty when I was six years old. I served in the army. I taught history and government in the public schools. I started a pro-life organization. I started a young Republican organization. I ran campaigns, including a congressional campaign. I held local political office for 12 years. I led the campaign for traditional marriage in my county, Prop 8 in California, and I was sued just over 100 times by people like the ACLU, the American Separated for the, or Americans United for the Separation of Church and State, et cetera, et cetera. So I have been engaged in making America great again. Right? <laughs> I deeply care about a more just America. Uh, we've paid for that as a family. My family's been stalked um, by multiple people, threatened. We've had to move. I had a man burn himself alive in protest of me. Um, my point is that while I care deeply about America, what my neighbor needs most and what the world needs most is not the American Constitution. It's the Word of God. Amen. The world needs a holy Christian church preaching a clear biblical gospel far more than the world needs a just America. Please consider this. There are thousands of people groups representing hundreds of millions of people with zero access to the gospel. I don't mean they have some anemic, weak churches in their communities. I mean whole language groups with no gospel witness whatsoever. No opportunity to hear about Jesus Christ. They will go their entire lives 
living and then dying with no gospel hope. They have none. Zero opportunity to hear about Jesus. And thus they are damned to hell. People across the world will stand before the ultimate bar of God's justice with no gospel hope. And this is the ultimate gospel injustice issue. Now what I know about a group of uh, folks like this, I was going to say men, but I look out here and see a lot of women too. What I know about a group of folks like this is that we love Paul's theology. We tend to particularly love the book of Romans. Um, If you're anything like me, you're the kind of minister who finds yourself at Founders precisely because Christ's spirit confronted you with the doctrines of grace in Paul's letter to the church at Rome. And what I love about the men at Founders and those of you gathered here is you desire nothing more than to be masters of divinity in the manner Spurgeon spoke of. You want to know and preach true theology. You want to understand proper use of the law and gospel. And as Tom Hicks pointed out helpfully yesterday and demonstrated quite clearly, this is all clearly found in the book of Romans. You're likely the kind of Christians who read Paul's 11-chapter argument laying out the gospel and have your souls raptured with joy as he concludes that section of the letter with, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Amen. I know that's likely the kind of Christians you are. That's why you're here. So I want to ask you a question, and I want you to consider this question seriously. How often have you spent time reflecting on this same letter, this letter of Romans, as a missionary support letter? I think it's an important question. You all have gotten missionary support letters. Do you realize that the letter to Rome is functioning as a missionary support letter? Do you recognize that Paul is laying out this glorious doctrine of salvation, these truths of law and gospel that Tom so helpfully explained to us yesterday, in the midst of a letter in which he's also raising support for global missions? Look at Romans 1.5, and I just want you to see how this is bracketed. As Paul lays out his calling, and he says, verse 5 of chapter 1, through whom we have received, and I think that we there is probably an editorial plural, I, I, I joke in helping people understand what I mean by that. It's like me asking my wife, what are we making for dinner? And she says, you mean what am I making for dinner? Yeah, it's editorial plural. So, through whom we've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations. Paul wants to bring about the obedience of faith. He wants people from every nation to obey the gospel call to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and repent of their sins and be saved. And this desire... For that to happen among all nations forms an inclusio around the book of Romans. An inclusio, if you're not sure, is is a literary device. It's like a bracket around the book of Romans. And so I want you to look at the inclusio there. Look at Romans chapter 16. Notice some of the same language picked up in verse 26. But has now, he's talking about this gospel mystery, has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. Paul's gospel motivated Paul's missionary work to the nations. 
It is precisely because Paul knew the unmerited love of God in Christ that Paul was compelled to be an ambassador for Christ. We should want our churches to know these glorious doctrines of grace that Paul lays out here. However, we should not want them to know these doctrines of grace divorced from the missionary imperative. In other words, we should not want our churches to fall into the, the sin that Sinclair Ferguson has warned about when he says he fears that too many Reformed folks know the doctrines of grace, but do not know the grace of those doctrines. We want our people to know the grace of God and thus to be compelled to proclaim the gospel grace to the world. We don't want their understanding of these doctrines to be locked up in some church building or on social media or in some classroom, or in some conference. We want these doctrines, which are ultimately about the saving person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ, to be proclaimed to all nations. My neighbor doesn't know Jesus, and he needs to know him. There are 3,100 people groups who don't know Jesus, and they need to know him. See, Paul knew Jesus, Paul loved Jesus, and Paul believed others needed to know Jesus. And it is no mistake, friends, that Paul places nearly 11 chapters of the most exalted explication of the doctrine of salvation in a letter that also functions as a missionary support letter. Just to back that up a bit more, look at Romans 15. Romans 15, and look at verse 24. I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain. He's wanting to come to them. He's first going to go to Jerusalem and deliver an offering. He hasn't been to Rome yet because he's been out uh, planting churches all around from Jerusalem to Illyricum. He wants to come to them on the way to Spain. But notice that he's going to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I've enjoyed your company for a while. Drop down to verse 28. When therefore I've completed this, that meaning the delivering an offering to Jerusalem, and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. See, I intend to come to you, Rome, to encourage you in the gospel, for you to encourage me, and then to seek your help so that I can go from you and be sent to Spain to preach the gospel where it has not been made known. Sadly, I think Paul's letter to Rome is often read and taught without proper attention to this aspect of the nature of the letter. We often come to Romans and find it nearly impossible to sound the depths of Paul's theology and in our worthy effort to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church through Paul regarding matters like sin and justification and propitiation and sanctification and glorification and election, we can underemphasize an important aspect of this letter to Paul, from Paul. We can underemphasize or lose sight of the fact that this is also a missionary support letter. Paul is a missionary to the nations. And in the course of encouraging the church of Rome, he also hopes for their help in furthering his missionary enterprise. That missionary calling is what Christ has given to Paul. And he rejoices in his great honor to make Jesus known. Amen. So here's my point I'm driving at this morning. Paul knew his gospel privilege. He had the gospel and others did not. And he knew his corresponding global responsibility. He needed to make it known to those who didn't know it. And I'm saying, brothers, if we know our gospel privilege, then we also know our gospel responsibility. 
and I'm saying this, I hope, to a group of folks who are having ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. This is what I want to look at, really, just briefly as we conclude our conference on the gospel and justice. I want us to consider our gospel privilege and our global responsibility. So to that end, here's what I want to do. I want to talk about two major implications of our gospel privilege. You ready? And these are, I'm going to come at these fairly quickly. The first one is this. Our gospel privilege indebts us to global missions. It indebts us to global missions. And second, our gospel privilege gives us the honor of global missions. So let me take the first one. Our gospel privilege indebts us to global missions. Look at Romans 1 and verse 14. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians. The Greeks would be the cultured folks, the barbarians. That's an onomatopoeia. It's a way of saying a word by saying its name. Onomatopoeia, you know you're saying it by hearing, saying what you hear, if you will. So when the Greeks heard the barbarians speaking, they heard bar, 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 bar. So they said, barbarians, okay? So the Greeks and the barbarians, if you will, the cultured and the uncultured, the learned and the unlearned, both to the wise and to the foolish. I'm under obligation, so I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Paul is under obligation. In the King James Version, we actually say he's a debtor. Paul's a debtor. Paul is obligated to or indebted to. Why is Paul a debtor? Why is he under obligation to Greek and barbarian? To the wise and the foolish. Now think about this. This is a Jewish man under obligation to the Greeks. To the barbarians. I mean, he's under obligation to some of the very people oppressing his nation. Why is he indebted to them? The wise and the foolish. Why? Well, he's under obligation minimally as God has commanded him and commissioned him. If you think about Romans 1 1, he says, Paul, a servant or slave of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel that's concerning his son. So minimally, because God has called him. But in that sense, the whole church is a debtor. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples among all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and truly I'm with you always to the very end of the age. That was given to the apostles, but folks, as the foundation of the church, that is now passed to Christ's church. That is the whole church's responsibility, not just Paul's. But I think his point goes further than this. Paul understands he has something that other people need. He has the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why he says, so I'm eager to preach the gospel to you. He is a debtor in that he knows the grace of God that others do not know. Listen, what does Paul share with the Greeks and the barbarians? He shares their common humanity. He shares their common sin. He shares their common condemnation. But what does Paul not share with them? He knows the gospel, and he's saved. He's the chief of sinners, and Christ has saved him, and now the love of Christ compels him and debts him to others. That's why we read what we do in Romans 1.16 when he says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's a litotus. He's, he's basically 
underemphasizing. Say, I'm proud of the gospel. Why? For it, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it, in what? The gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, for as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And why do we need that gospel news, that righteousness, not our own, that we have only through faith, that we find only in the gospel? Why do we need that righteousness? Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Stand over it and push it down. That's all of us. He goes on and sums that up in chapter 3 when he asks the question, oh, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we're already charged that all are under sin. No one is righteous. No, not one. No one is good. No one seeks for God. All stand condemned. Every man will stand before God and his mouth will be shut before the bar of God's justice. So the only hope is the gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ. And Paul has been graced with this gospel and he wants others to know it. We're in an era in which many evangelical leaders are shouting from the rooftops about white privilege. That's not my problem. I look like a white guy, but I'm a Mexican. Check out my last name, right? So they are consumed with the notion that the church is obligated to work for a definition of justice whereby all people have equal outcomes. In the midst of this debate, I want to throw a concern out there. While pastors are busy attempting to be sociologists and cultural anthropologists and social justice advocates in an effort to bring about equal outcomes in secular matters, we're ignoring the weightiest lack of equality out there. We're ignoring the lack of equal opportunity to the salvation found in Christ alone. There are 3,100 plus people groups, ethno-linguistically distinct people groups who have zero gospel witness. I've said that a few times. I'm going to keep saying it because I want you to feel the weight of it. They have no gospel access at all. And if we have decided that equality is the greatest virtue, then why aren't pastors shouting this inequality from the rooftops? If we're so anxious to shout about what Christ shouts about and to whisper about what he whispers about, then we should be shouting about this. We should be shouting about our gospel privilege and thus our gospel indebtedness. So we're burning so much energy on these secular injustices, all which utterly misdiagnose the fundamental problem with man. Your greatest problem is not that you're a victim of some societal injustice. Your greatest problem is that you and me are a wicked law-breaking offender against our holy God. The primary injustice in the world, please catch this, is committed by you, breaking God's law. Your greatest need is not for the church to get distracted trying to reorganize the society to help you overcome the injustice committed against you. Your greatest need is for the church to remain vigilantly committed to proclaiming the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ alone. You need to know that Jesus satisfied the justice of God for you. He satisfied the precept and the penalty of God's law for you. And he graciously offers you salvation and life in his name. You need to hear that message. And you need the spirit to regenerate you, to give you life, so that you believe and are saved. That's our greatest need. That's what your neighbor needs to hear. 
Here's the objection I hear to this, though. Isn't that just something that a privileged white guy in a wealthy country says? I mean, isn't that something that a group of majority white folks sitting in a conference room in a nice hotel in Louisville have the privilege of saying? I keep hearing folks say that, that this appeal to preaching the simple gospel is the kind of thing that those in privileged positions have the luxury of saying. Listen to what a, a young restless reform pastor, that's all I'll call him this way, but not name him, posted recently on social media. Here's a quote. Those who say, let's just preach the simple gospel, usually live where good working social systems are already in place. I read this and I wondered, have you read the New Testament? What was life like for a Jewish Christian in the first century in the Roman Empire? Was that a privileged, privileged social system for them? What, what was it like for Paul? Was he a, a member of a privileged majority? Was he treated fairly by his government? Paul was slandered, mistreated, often left hungry, naked, and distressed, arrest, arrested, beaten, and eventually killed. Yet how did Paul respond to his severe mistreatment, injustice, and oppression? For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. He was singularly focused on preaching the simple gospel Precisely because he knew what their deepest problem was. Now, do we really believe that apart from this gospel message being preached and the spirit applying it, that men will remain dead in their sins and eternally damned by the righteous justice of God? I'm not convinced everyone calling themselves an evangelical believes that any longer. And if we do believe it, then how does that affect the way we pray and preach and send missionaries. How, how does it affect it? You guys, I'm sure, love Spurgeon the way I do. Spurgeon, in his book, The Soul Winner, as he was speaking to Sunday school teachers, talks about prayer for the children in the church. And he says, he says to them essentially something along the lines of, do you, do you remember the, how Elijah prayed for the widow's son? He cast himself upon the widow's dead son and he cried out to the Lord to give him life. Do we do that for our children? Spurgeon asks, that your children are every bit as spiritually dead as that widow's dead son was physically dead. Do we cast ourselves before the Lord and plead with him to give them life? Listen, it's no badge of honor to talk about being a Baptist pastor who doesn't baptize infants if you're failing to plead with the Lord for the salvation of those same infants. Do we plead with the Lord for our coworkers, our neighbors, our friends? Do we plead with the Lord on behalf of the nations? Do we really see that they're dead in sins, they're blind and deaf, and do we plead with the Lord to give them life, to raise up workers for the harvest? Do we beseech the Lord to that end? Jesus never commanded us to wait until some young person in our church went to a conference and got fired up about missions and came back and asked about being sent. He said, pray that the Lord of the harvest will raise up workers for the harvest. Do we do that? 
He commanded us to send. He commanded us to go. And yes, go is part of the imperative there. I keep hearing this. It's the most anticlimactic thing in the world. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So when you're walking around, could you make some disciples? I mean, that is not what's happening there, folks. Go is a participle, but it's a participle that attends the circumstance of the main verb, which is make disciples, which is an imperative. And therefore, go takes that imperatival nature. Go and make disciples among all nations. The only hope of the nations is the preaching of the gospel, which leads to the second implication and that we're going to look at this morning of gospel privilege. Our gospel privilege gives us the honor of global missions. It doesn't just indebt us to global missions. I want you to hear this. Our gospel privilege indebts us to global missions, but our gospel privilege also gives us the honor of global missions. Look at Romans 15. Look there with me. And I want to look at verse... Starting in verse 18, I want to read verses 18 and 19 and then verse 23 and ask a question. Romans 15 and verse 18. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, which Illyricum is approximately southern Albania. That's a long way. This is a circular journey he's made. All around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Now look down at verse 23. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain. This is, this is fascinating. Paul says he's preached the gospel... From Jerusalem in a circular pattern all the way around to Illyricum and all the way back. There are lots of cities and towns in that region. There are hundreds of thousands of millions of people in those regions. Less than probably 1% of them have come to Christ at this point. Yet Paul says, I fulfilled my ministry. And Paul says something remarkable. There's no, no room for work for me in these regions. Now imagine if your pastor stood up in your city, I don't care what city you're in in America, and said, there's just no more room for gospel work here for me. You would think he's lost his mind. So how can Paul say that? How can he say that? Because his work is a specific missionary task. Look at Romans 15.20. He really gives us the answer here. And thus, I make it my ambition, and I'll talk about that word ambition in a minute. I make it my ambition or my aim to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Paul has an aim or an ambition. What is it? To preach Christ where he has not yet been named. In other words, to lay a new foundation. He has planted churches in all those areas from Jerusalem to Illyricum, and those churches, in Paul's mind, can now reach those cities and those areas. The foundation of the gospel is laid in that the gospel has been preached and churches have been planted, and Paul wants to reach the unreached peoples of the world. Specifically, he wants to go to Spain next. That's what he means by I have no more room for work. The foundation's been laid. These men can now build on it. 
My work is to go lay a new foundation where there is no foundation, and so he's going to go there. Specifically, he wants to go to Spain. But what's interesting is this word ambition, and I make it my ambition. It can also be translated something like he has the honor of preaching the gospel where it has not been preached. Paul's seeking a holy honor or ambition. This is a holy ambition, not a worldly ambition. It's seeking to be honored by God and not by man. This is the honor of suffering for the cause of making Christ known where he is not. Of bearing in our bodies the afflictions that are lacking in Christ for the sake of his body, the church. That's what he's seeking is that honor. I told you earlier about Brooks Bruiser, who's the president of Radius currently. His father, Brad Bruiser, is really the the driving force behind founding Radius. Um, He's the man who kind of mentored me in missions early on when I was young and who himself had um, planted a church in a formerly cannibalistic tribe. He moved his wife and young kids into a tribe called the Teddy um, and lived with them for 20 years, from 1979 to 1999. So when he left, Jimmy Carter was president. When he came back, Bill Clinton was president. That's what he left from and came back to, right? <laughs> 20 years. He suffered immensely. He suffered loneliness. He suffered disease. He suffered loss. He told me at one time, that he wrote down 5,000 reasons, literally wrote down 5,000 reasons to leave. And he said, I could only come up with one reason to stay. Jesus commanded it. His location required him to send his kids to boarding school for much of the year, each and every year. So he lost most of the worldly joy we all come to expect from being parents. Further, all three of his sons have gone to other people groups. This means he's lost the privilege of their company as adults and has missed out on much of the lives of his grandkids. And he replied that he suffers that loss when I asked him, how do you endure suffering that loss? He replied he suffers that loss for the honor of standing before the Lord and presenting the Teddy Church to him. He he says, I I long for the day where I say to the Lord, here's the Teddy church. Here's how my life was spent. Here's the Yembe Yembe church. Here's the church in BM. Here is how the life of my boys was spent. That is his crown and joy. And what more godly and holy ambition and honor could there be? Building more temporary political artifices to make the world more just may be a worthy effort, but it pales in comparison to the real need of man. Pales. I can build generations of temporary socio-political systems that seem to be more just and yet be guilty of doing nothing more than providing better conditions for folks on their way to eternal hell. I can raise up armies of social justicians and politicians and neglect the much weightier and more eternal matters. See, what does it profit mankind if I gain the whole world for my socio-political cause and forfeit the gospel ministry which saves their souls? Brother pastors in here, I 
I pray that we would have a holy ambition that the Lord will give us the honor of raising up more gospel preachers through the ministry he does through us. Christ has come to save people from every tribe and tongue and nation, and Paul was ambitious to have the honor of carrying that gospel word to the world and to plant churches. May the Lord be pleased to use our local churches to raise up and train and send and support many missionaries, for we have glorious good news in Jesus that the world needs to hear. We have an incredible gospel privilege and a corresponding global responsibility. May God make us grateful and faithful to that. Let me pray. Father, we are thankful for the kindness that you have shown us in that, in your good purposes, gospel preachers, missionaries were sent to our ancestors. The gospel came to our language. The word of God is in our language and we have heard that gospel news. We have heard of Jesus Christ and been saved. We deserve that privilege no more than any man. And yet you have graced us with that. We pray that we would see our global responsibility, our indebtedness to those who share our common humanity, our common sin, and our common condemnation, but do not know your son, Jesus, and that we would be zealous to proclaim him across the earth for the sake of your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.